Welcome to the CETO pod. This From the Archives episode is the first part of the keynote from Triangular Conference 2008. The keynote was styled as a conversation in two parts between Professor Dermot Moran from University College Dublin School of Philosophy and Professor Lucas Introna from Lancaster University. In part one, Dermot introduces phenomenology and argues for its continuing relevance to philosophy and science. experience of time. Uh, I'm very happy and uh, honoured to introduce Dermot, Dermot Moran, Professor of Philosophy here at uh, this uh, university, UCD. Uh, I met him uh, indirectly through his, his very great book called The Introduction to Phenomenology, uh, which is a really great text. My only criticism of it is you need to, to have a good background in some of uh, phenomenology in order to, to get access to it. It's not, it's not quite yet at the level for the, for the uninitiated. Uh, and, and so I want to encourage you to write the, the introduction to the introduction to phenomenology, which is sort of for the uninitiated. One of the big problems with phenomenology is, uh, is uh, to penetrate the language. Uh, you know, it's a great tradition situated within philosophy, uh, and as such, it draws on a, a whole set of uh, ideas that is very difficult to get into. And uh, you know, in that sense, it, it's it's uh, not not an easy read. But uh, beyond that, if you put in the effort, it's a really fantastic introduction to this tradition, which is complex and varied and uh, you know, multifaceted and has a, a lot of undercurrents and sub-streams and, and all of that. So it's always a challenge, I find, to say, you know, to, uh, to address this question of what is phenomenology and how does it use it? How do we apply it? Or, or what does it mean for us? It's a, it's a really challenging question. So I'm very glad that Dermot has taken on this challenge and is going to give us an introduction to phenomenology uh, in, a, in an accessible way, as I know he can. So uh, I, 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 what, what we're going to do is basically he's going to kick off. Uh, I'm going to take on some comments after his presentation, talk a bit about how I've used phenomenology and what I think is important in it, and then we're going to open it up for discussion. Right, thank you very much, Lucas, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, as I was saying, I had a look at the program and many of your uh, abstracts and papers. I, I didn't understand them, and I thought, well, you probably won't understand this. So <laughs> that way we can learn from each other because uh, we're both on new ground. But uh, I do, I am going to try and introduce phenomenology from the assumption that no one here is really a, a specialist in philosophy. And indeed, the founder of phenomenology, Husserl, always had this aim of what he called radical beginning, trying to be a radical beginner, just to think through things right from the beginning. So I've just left my email. Uh, oh, it's not readable, because <laughs> um, it's in red. But um, anyway, all of these slides, I'm going to leave them with uh, 
the organizers, and so they can you can access them afterwards. And I have a handout, with it, and people can get this after the lunch. So, um, you know, phenomenology is a term that is becoming more frequently encountered now in a number of the social sciences, and there's a something of a revival of phenomenology going on. And there are some of the reasons they're not particularly um, elevated. Uh, it sounds seriously scientific, so it sounds like we're doing something very methodological. And in that sense, phenomenology can be held up as a uh, counter example to the kinds of quantitative method, uh, the purely quantitative approaches that we're encountering almost everywhere, uh, from economics to sociology to any of the areas that, um, uh, <coughs> where one can apply numbers. Uh, but there is another side to life, there's another side to our experience, um, which the so-called qualitative research movement has tried to capture, and which phenomenology speaks to very well. And that is the, you know, the manner in which we ourselves experience the world and ourselves and, our, and the objects within the world. And that's what phenomenology is. Phenomenology itself uh, appeals because it's a radical approach. Um, in that it, it basically starts from the assumption that we shouldn't assume anything, including um, any particular theories about the world. Uh, we shouldn't bring any presupposed theories about our experience to bear. Rather, we should attempt to focus really on what is what I call the concretely human approach. Uh, Husserl himself, one of the founders of phenomenology, did say it was a kind of empiricism. Uh, uh, in the sense that it, it led to a re-examination of experience. And so experience is central in phenomenology. Uh, but Husserl thought that traditional empiricism, by which he meant Hume, or the kind of uh, positivist use of empirical data in the sciences, that that was too narrow for what he took to be the meaning of uh, uh, experience. So, what is phenomenology? Well, you know, it's probably best described as the descriptive science of experiencing, of our own experiencing, and of the object's experience. I put objects there in inverted commas because object is a term that Husserl uses very, very broadly to mean almost anything that we have. Well, for example, you know, uh, bottle is an object, pen, and all of these, but they're tools, but they're other kinds of objects. Uh, there are handshakes. Just thinking about handshakes the other day. Um, uh, because there, there's so many varieties in which handshakes can be given to you, and we read so much off handshakes. So they're, they're, they're social objects, if you like, but they're real, they're out there, they're experienced. And therefore, how we relate to them, how they are, if you like, constituted, uh, that's what we're interested in in phenomenology. So, what is looked at is the manner in which we experience phenomena, the manner of givenness, if to use the ooh, to use the technical term. Uh, givenness is a term we'll come back to, but uh, phenomena are to be understood very bright, broadly as anything at all that we experience. And the important thing is that the kind of description we're going to give of phenomena is not the purely scientific one. Uh, 17th century science was very interested in phenomena like the rainbow. And they thought, well, what are rainbows and how are they caused and so on. 
Um, and it led to a certain kind of enthusiasm for saying they don't really exist. Rainbows don't really exist. They're reflection, refractions of light at a certain angle and so on, caused by, you know, uh, <coughs> the angle of the sun and the amount of moisture. And there's all kinds of a technical explanation as to what rainbows are. But the 17th century sort of enthusiasm was to say they don't really exist. What really exists are the, mo the moisture and the droplets and the, the, the rays of light and so on. Uh, but not the rainbow. And yet, you know, our, in our experience, how you wouldn't have even started looking at the science of explaining rainbows if we hadn't experienced rainbows. So the experience came before the <coughs> claim that they don't exist. So, I mean, that's one of the things that phenomenology points out a lot of the time, is that we go looking for an explanation because we have an experience, because there is a phenomenon present to us. Sometimes science will come back and deny the existence of that phenomenon. We have to be very careful about that if that isn't a kind of hubris or what I'm calling kind of enthusiasm. And that's why I'm putting down that the description, the kind of description which phenomenology gives, uh, is not to be really purely causal, not just in terms of the natural sciences. Um, I mean, think of a description of handshakes in terms of natural science. Uh, you could understand that. I mean, in the health sciences, clearly, uh, you'd be considering, you know, uh, sort of naked handshakes where people don't wear gloves as passing on germs or something like that. So you might have a very physicalistic account of handshakes. I was thinking about uh, uh, a woman on the radio the other day interviewing uh, a Muslim man. And at the end of the interview, she reached out her hand, but he wouldn't shake it for religious reasons. So, you know, there's no science of that. There's no scientific... Uh, it's not about the germs that are going to be transmitted. It's something else. So we have to describe the experience in the terms appropriate to it. So that's really what, what I put down there as being attend, uh, alert to the holistic nature of the phenomenon. And part of that, then, is this word horizon, the very mysterious word that is used a lot in phenomenology. Uh, taken from the very notion of a horizon, the physical notion of a horizon, uh, which is, you know, the boundary, if you like, of what is seen. Um, everything we see is, takes place against a background and some kind of horizon. That's, if you like, at the limit of what we see. And that limit is there to kind of frame our experience. And for whatever uh, object we're looking at, there is a sort of set of horizons around it. Um, <clears throat> Looking at this bottle here, for example, there are lots of stories you could tell about it. It's causal origin, you know, which factory it came from, where the water came from, what is plastic made of, how it get recycled, and so on. But there are other aspects of it. It, it could be used as paperweight, right? That belongs to, if you like, its horizon of possibilities. Uh, or, you know, you could throw it at someone or whatever. It could become a weapon. So, uh, even any physical object, it's not just a physical object. It belongs within the set of horizons. Now, those horizons could be uh, related entirely to human involvement, but they don't necessarily be what's involved with humans. They may be, you know, they may be horizons of interaction with other objects or with other beings, animals, for example. So, <clears throat> um, the point that I've been saying about phenomenology is that they want to talk about a kind of interpretation or 
description or explanation, which isn't necessarily causal. Scientific explanation, very interested in causation. But other forms of explanation, especially the ones in history, for example, they're not causal in the same way. You know, uh, you know that famous poem or ditty about for want of a nail the shoe was lost, for want of the shoe the horse was lost, for want of the horse the rider was lost, for want of the rider the battle was lost, all for the want of a nail. So, you know, if there, there's a causal explanation of why a battle was lost because uh, a horse, shoe nail fell out of the horse's shoe of Napoleon or whatever. Well, you know, that's clearly a crazy form of explanation in history. It's not one that deals with the reasons of, of, the, of the explanation or the reasons of the phenomenon. So attending to the appropriate level of description is terribly important and very difficult. And often uh, it drives people mad because they, they shift levels of description very quickly. And it's hard to know we're still talking about the same thing. I mean, the example I'm giving you there is just simply uh, maybe because in philosophy we have a lot of interaction with people in science, and the scientists, especially the material science, the physical scientists, physicists, chemists, and so on, they're always saying, "Well, things are. This is really made up of energy and you know uh, atoms and molecules and so on, uh, and there's nothing else. We just think it's a bottle because that's something out of our own." Experience, but it's not really a bottle. It's a, you know, it's some sort of fragment of space-time, some sort of slice of space-time energy, or something like that. Well, that's one line, level of description. But when you take an artwork, you know, it wouldn't be very helpful to give that kind of explanation. To say, look, it's really just canvas and wood and oil and brushstrokes, and that's it. It's just a cluster of those things. You know, when you go into an art museum and when you look at artworks. You are adopting what's, what Husserl would talk about as the aesthetic attitude. We're, we're looking at something, we're seeing an object as a particular kind of entity, not just as a lump of wood, but as now something that I say has meaning, an aesthetic meaning, in a particular way. Uh, it could have other kinds of meaning. You know, um, a detective looking for the real Mona Lisa might go into the you know, to the museum in Paris and uh, take a look at it in order to see if they could identify the person on the street. But that would be using the artwork not as an artwork, but as something else. So there, it's important that the view you have of the artwork to pick out the aesthetic properties is itself an aesthetic view. And that's one of the problems with phenomenology is that you're going to have multiple levels of attention or attitude. Why? Because we have them already. You know, we, we look at things and people in so many different ways. You know, in one, in one category, you're the captain of the chess club, or you are the person who uh, leads the band, or in something else, you are a father or a mother or a sister. In something else, you're, you know, you're in a work relation. So we have these different roles. But not just that, but there are different levels of description as to what uh, we do. So there is sort of a, a kind of layering of meaning uh, all the time. And that's what phenomenology is interested in, the manner in which things mean. And I put down means there at the bottom because meaning is a very act. Meaning sounds like it's something that's fixed and just out there. But means is an activity. You know, what this means uh, to me, the activity of meaning, if you like. Uh, and that's important to capture that and see how that's constructed, put together. 
And one of the problems that phenomenology faces is that uh, there's a kind of initial reaction that, say, meaning is something entirely subjective. What the Mona Lisa means to me is different from what it means to you. There's no science of that, so why do we bother? Why don't we just fixate on something we can make scientific, perhaps something like uh, the form of the smile or something like that? But of course, what is a smile? You know, it's, it, a smile is, again, an object, it's a phenomenon. But, um, uh, there's a dolphin down in Kerry that swims with uh, humans called fungi, and um, you can go down there and swim with them. He's getting old now, he can still go down there, but he has a kind of fixed smile. By our view, by our anthropocentric view, I don't think the dolphin thinks he's smiling. But, um, you know, people, somebody was very badly injured by a dolphin recently. Another, this, this phenomenon is occurring all over the place. Another dolphin in Clare's charge somebody, as is their nature. And the person is very upset, because you don't expect a dolphin with a nice smile like that to attack you. But that's because we're thinking smile, you see. So, so you see what I mean? That the appropriateness of the meaning of something, it's a very complex thing. And it's not just because it's not physically out there, nor is it purely subjective. It's some kind of interaction between subject and object. And in fact, that's what phenomenology is trying to do is to bypass traditional preconceptions about what's subject, what's object. And, and the reason it needs to do that is because uh, since the 17th century, the whole success of modern science was precisely because it took a supposedly objective stance. Um, you know, there are really no such thing as colors. Colors are merely reactions in our, caused by our visual systems interacting with light, which is reflected off surfaces. You know, that description which Descartes gives, which Galileo gives, that's largely bought by a lot of people in science to think what's really out there is wavelengths. Uh, but of course, you know, we, we were just having this discussion myself and uh, Lucas just a minute ago, wavelengths themselves are, are, are theoretical concepts within uh, science. You don't see wavelengths. In fact, we had a physicist uh, pointing out that you don't see light at all. People think you can see light shining. But light in, the vo in, 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 in space, you can't see. Uh, light is only in relation to surfaces. So <coughs> light itself is, in, is invisible. Wavelengths are, are perhaps uh, theoretical entities. Things could change, so we don't see that. But we do have experience of blue. We can see that it's part of our, uh, if you like, our folk vocabulary of our experience, that there are colors. And that's very important that we respect that and not always undermine it. And one of the dangers is that a lot of science has been to undermine it, uh, often in good causes by saying, originally it was simply a bracketing, as I point out. It just bracketed it out and said, look, we've no way of measuring what my experience of blue is like. So let's, we can measure the wavelength, so we can... Uh, we can work by uh, building a science which is sort of objective in the sense of what is measurable. Uh, and initially just assign the subjective to what was not yet measurable or not understandable. But very soon that became, there is nothing to the subjective or it's misleading. One of the things that phenomenology wants to do is to overcome that belief that meaning is something purely subjective. Something solely, if you like, within us. Um, there are, you know, there, meaning is, well, the, the 
one of the words in, in, in phenomenology would be intersubjective. Certain things like handshakes are constituted between subjects. The meaning is a kind of co-constituting activity. Uh, one person may mean one thing. You know, Ian Paisley, I'll give it a good grip. So Ian Paisley talking about shaking hands with Bertie or something. Uh, uh, <coughs> he had an intention to do something when he shook hands. Uh, and and that, that imposing or imposition of meaning into the situation uh, is incredibly important. Um, <coughs> Sartre talks in a famous passage of being in nothingness about a man and a woman that are out on a sort of first date. Uh, the woman's hand is on the table and the man puts his hand on it you know, it rests his hand on hers as a sort of communication of, you know, let's get a little bit more intimate. And she's not sure, so she just pretends she doesn't notice. So she doesn't withdraw her hand, but she doesn't engage either. She just leaves it there and leaves this moment ambiguous. So he doesn't know, uh, you know, is this going somewhere or is it not going somewhere? And she doesn't want, uh, you know, as, as, as Sartre says, at that moment she's all mine. She's just pure. What were you talking about? You know, in other words, pure into the conversation, just ignoring this, pretending this isn't happening. And there, there's ways in which we inject meaning into it and pull it out, but there's also a kind of meaning that's in there anyway. Right? You're reading the situation, say, as an observer. You know what's going on. So <clears throat> it's peculiar the way in which meaning is something that's somehow uh, shared across subjects and objects as well. And that's one of the, the difficulties. So, what we've been saying really is that phenomenology involves what I'm calling here recuperation of experience. We've got to get back to experience, to, to, to trust it, and not to uh, take a reductionistic approach to our experience. Uh, very evident in, in uh, as you know, um, in health sciences and all the rest of that is a kind of ignoring of the subject. We need to reinsert the subject back into experience. And phenomenology was one of the first to do that. It's become very, very common now to talk about embodiment and the manner in which we are embodied as part of our experience in the world. Um, but for a long time, people didn't really talk about that at all. They talked about, say, seeing blue without thinking that seeing is an embodied activity. That, to, you know, to see anything... Well, let's say, to, to feel smoothness, you actually have to make an activity of moving your hand. You can see smoothness too, that's the odd thing. Uh, but you can, you can, to touch it, you touch it on its own doesn't give you smoothness. It would only give you that point. To find the smoothness of a surface, you've got to actually physically do something. To look at what's behind you, you've got to turn your body physically. And for a long time, amazingly, things like that were just simply left out of descriptions of experience. The embodied nature of it, never mind what has become much more. Uh, common now, the notion of the uh, engendered body, the, no the notion of the, if you like, the, the constituted body in terms of the way in which it's, uh, you know, uh, already made meaningful, whatever, tattoos, uh, adornments, not just that, but uh, the whole manner in which somebody is inserted, if you like, into the situation. Um, so, uh, I just stuck this next one up because we're just going to jump suddenly into what Lucas was saying was the formidable language of phenomenology. Uh, what phenomenology would talk about that is to say that what we mean by world is co-constituted. Uh, and constituted uh, is a complex idea. It's not just created. 
but is co-constituted by transcendental subjectivity and intersubjectivity. Well, I've stuck a big word in there, transcendental. Uh, um, but what I mean by that really is that uh, going back to that situation, uh, handshakes and so on, you know, I didn't deem the meaning of a handshake. It wasn't me. I didn't wake up one day and say, um, the rubbing of hands and fingers shall constitute the action of greeting among people uh, in ordinary situations. But somehow that had already been done a long time ago, and indeed in a particular culture. But um, it's there as a sort of uh, assumption within my experience, within my embodied experience. So it has a sort of already there status. And that's, if you like, what usually is the word transcendental uh, refers to, something like conditions that make these experiences possible. So anyway, we don't need to say much anything more about that. I'm just saying that often what phenomenology does is to talk in very complex ways about things that we really do experience. But it does allow us to rethink how it is we experience them. Okay, now, why I'm, at the beginning I said there's a renewed interest in phenomenology across a range of disciplines. And without really having to do any work at all yesterday, I just pulled out a whole number that just I was thinking about from phenomenological psychiatry, where it's always had a big role. Because, you know, notions like anxiety or depression, moods, uh, not feeling at home in the world, all of these things are very, very complex. I mean, yes, there is a physiological and neurological base. Maybe there's not enough lithium in the system or whatever. But there are also, why does a person feel this way rather than another? Why is it this particular fantasy rather than another one. These can't be explained by, you know, the uh, chemical. It's not, you know, there, there is a much more complex uh, construction of constitutional meaning uh, in our experience. And so phenomenology is has a huge role in psychiatry, especially in Europe. Uh, cognitive science, well, you know, is a kind of replacement, if you like, for uh, much of behavioral Psychology, cognitive science came in with the recognition that in order to do really serious science of the mind, modeling, memory, or whatever, they have to know what it was. And the way we remember things, the manner in which our memory mingles with uh, uh, perception and fantasy and, and so on, they're very complex. So cognitive science suddenly realized we need to know about the subject. It's not just inputs and outputs and so on. The experience of the environment, that's huge now, eco-phenomenology. Um, because uh, uh, environments are those kinds of horizons I was talking about earlier that's shade off. And yet they're hugely important. You know, uh, and, and in lots of ways we're always battling it in the contemporary world against the horizon. I'm trying to talk over the home of this machine. Uh, the nice sound has just come on cue in the background. You know? uh, but that's difficult. I know from someone with a hearing aid, they often don't focus out. But, you know, unfortunately, the application often amplifies everything. So, you know, in order to realize that as human beings, we're amazingly able to focus on what I'm speaking rather than on that. I can focus on that and I'm thinking, I wonder why the fan is so loud that it needs to be surfaced. I could be thinking a different mode, right? Or, you know, when you listen to me, you're thinking, oh, that's a funny accent. 
or whatever. And, and you know, you could see this is the case of the attitudes we were talking about earlier. There are many attitudes we take and can adopt all the time. We switch from one to the other. We could have, if you like, the access attitude. You know, it could be documented the different access of people in this room. Uh, or you could be thinking about sound pollution. But you see, uh, it, we're all the time moving into an area where the richness of our experience needs to be very carefully documented. And the amazingness of our, of our things like our ability to concentrate across them. And, and the environmental, if you like, support or uh, lack of support we get is crucial to that. Aesthetics, I've already talked about. Nursing and healthcare, I think, is pretty obvious uh, where the application is for phenomenology, the whole experience of being well and participating in the research project at the moment on well-being. Because remarkably, given the health sciences are so focused on health, there's very little discussion of what it means to be well. There are people who go through all kinds of treatments and still don't feel well. I mean, well-being, in a sense, was the aim of, it was another word for happiness in the Greek philosophy. Uh, so, achieving kind of happiness, but well-being, um, eudaimonia, I mean, some kind of sense of being well-spirited uh, is a hugely focused, central aspect of human existence, and yet isn't really that well cashed out. Uh, geography, I, I mean, archaeology, music, management studies, well, and race, gender, well, we know about all of these things. I'll just give you a few examples. Chris Tilley, who's a professor of anthropology in London, has been very much interested in the experience of uh, Neolithic landscapes. Uh, really, it's an interesting case because you have no documentary written evidence that you have you went to the stone, uh, you know, standing stone around the southwest of Ireland or England, and look at the, uh, the stones, and that's all you have to tell you about the people. We don't know what like the Newgrange, for example, uh, County Mead, which some of you may have visited or may want to visit. Uh, it's a huge stone. Uh, Necropolis, according to some people, or a calendar, according to others. But nobody knows who built it or what language they spoke was done 5,000 years ago. So all you have is the stones and their configuration in that landscape. And a vast amount can be learned from just the placing and the look of the stones, the, the very materiality of the, of the stones. So that's done, if you like, it can't avoid being subjective. People look at the shape of the stones and say, well, what do, does that look like a face? There's no science. I mean, the science will carbon date, you know, the materials found around us or whatever, but they can't tell you anything itself. They can tell you the weight of the stone or how far it was carried. And in fact, in the case of Newgrange, it was carried quite a long way, which itself is a mystery. So there are lots of things that, but there's nothing like the human, ex the interaction, the physical interaction with the stone itself and with the landscape. So that's archaeology. In psychology, Jonathan Smith in London um, he has developed something, he just calls it for short IPA, Interpretive Phenomenological Analysis. And he has, there's, I just gave two citations, I'll, I'll give you this later, I'm just scrolling through these, this eco-phenomenology uh, I've mentioned already. Uh, the, the sort of, re the reclaiming of our experience as earthbound inhabitants. Something crucial, really, to our very uh, self-understanding. And yet, you know, it needs to be, it's not all about the economics of distribution of oil or food or whatever. Uh, there's a sense of what it is to belong to a place. 
and to share a place with others, uh, and to be codependent with others in that place, and so on. So the phenomenology of describing it, right? Phenomenology of music, amazingly interesting. Because uh, uh, just like hearing, you know, the phenomenology of hearing and listening to music, I mean, the, the neurologists have tell us that the different areas of the brain are activated when people listen to music as when they listen to speech, which makes sense. But there's much more to that. What is it about music that somehow engages us? Um, what, is the, you know, what is it about rhythm? And, these are, and, and there's different... Think of someone who can, certain composers, uh, could hear the music in their heads and were just writing it down. Uh, others have the ability to pick up a score and hear it as played on the piano or hear it played on the violin. So, you know, think of the, the, the power, if you like, the imaginative power that's being brought to bear. Well, you know, that's something that requires description. We, we, something that, again, with people who focus so much on the structure of musical, uh, sort of mathematics of musical theory, have been ignoring for uh, So here are some of the phenomena that phenomenology, I think, is very good on describing. Well, Husserl himself described time. Uh, going back to this notion of horizons, the primary horizon we have is the temporal one. You know, in the sense that we occupy, whether it's a knife-edge present or whatever, we occupy some kind of point in this flow of time. And, you know, we don't know what's coming next. We don't know the future, uh, what the future is bringing. So there's a certain openness and expectation, and yet we are being carried relentlessly into it. And of course, you know, we're also bringing with us something out of the past. We're extending backwards and forward. We're, according to Husserl's terminology, pro-tending and retention. There's kind of retention of the past and a pro-tension of the future. But we're carrying past and future as sort of horizons on either side of this present. And the present itself is only given to us from one angle or one, one experience. Uh, so the whole notion of experience of temporality, that's very different to you know, T, uh, as it appears in uh, physics. You know, T standing for time in physics equations. Uh, as you know, almost everywhere at this one of the puzzles of modern physics, where T appears, it's, it's squared. So it's T squared, so it could be plus T or minus T. So you could have backwards time in physics. It's a perfectly reasonable assumption. Uh, I just read a whole uh, thesis on that topic from by physicist who, which was sent to me to review. It was interesting phenomenology because he realized that, uh, and he's a physicist in Israel, a very high-powered uh, theoretical physicist, that according to physics, it's perfectly okay for time to run backwards. All of his equations work the same way. It's sort of indifferent to time, to the flow of time. And yet our experience certainly isn't uh, indifferent to the flow of time. Uh, I mentioned landscape and embodied experience and music as heard, but the experience of identity and personhood is an extraordinary one. And of course, uh, we know a lot about that these days, uh, of people who have uh, problematic cases. And again, phenomenologists like Merlo Ponti was someone who thought, most of the time we don't feel anything in particular. So it's not a matter of thinking introspectively, who am I today? Uh, uh, you know, we don't engage with who we are through that means. But if something breaks down or goes wrong, we see what was running all the time. Like, just to give you an example, not on yourself, but just say, your balance. If you got an ear infection, you might get dizzy. 
and not be able to balance. But you didn't know all the time that right now I'm balanced, you are balanced. You fell asleep, you fall over. So your balancing is a conscious activity that we're doing. We don't know we're doing it until it breaks down. But it has a phenomenology of its own. Why? Because a tightroper, tightrope walker, can learn balance of an extremely refined kind. So it is something that can be achieved, if you like, consciously. Uh, but most of the time, we only discover it through something when it breaks down. Similarly, uh, with personhood and identity, who we are. I mean, most of us have no problem waking up every day. I'm just resuming the person we were. But when you think of how that's done, how, do, how is it you know who you are when you wake up? Uh, and just continue being you. Uh, and then there are problems with that, you know, not just people who have identity disorders or uh, multiple person disorders of all various kinds, but just there are cultural conditions of identity that are very complex. It leads to the very general notion of, which again has been very big in sociology. Phenomenology sort of contribution to sociology has been in this area of the, the constitution of the social world. Alfred Schutz, who was a student of Althusser, had an enormous impact. Uh, his work was influential on uh, these two people, Berger and Luckman, who produced a book, uh, The Social, Constitution, Social Construction of Reality, uh, which was hugely influential in the 60s and 70s. Uh, but right now, you know, certain philosophers of phenomenology, especially Levinas, uh, have been interested in this sort of contrast between the familiar and the strange, the experience of the strange, of what's foreign. I mean, in, in, not only in, in terms of culturally foreign uh, or threatening, uh, but just there's that, again, that horizon of familiarity within which all of us are. And then there's the parts that are outside that, like medieval maps that draw monsters where they don't want to live. We all have that. But we all carry around with us things we regard as familiar. We do things to keep ourselves familiar. Uh, you know, uh, having the same breakfast every day. Uh, Wittgenstein, I got just a anecdote, but Wittgenstein, I think Austrian philosopher, lived in Ireland for a short while, and uh, he lived in a boarding house in a very remote part of County Wicklow. I was at a conference where they invited the landlady was dead, but her daughter was alive. And she remembers, she had recollections of Wittgenstein coming, because it stuck in her head that when her mother asked Wittgenstein, what would you like for breakfast? He says, I don't mind as long as it's the same thing every day. <laughs> it strikes me. I mean, that would strike me. And yet, I've talked to a lot of people saying, no, they have exactly the same breakfast. They use the same mug. Have you know the same bowl for their cornflake? I mean the, that level of familiarity has to be there for something. I don't know again it's pathological so. But these ex the, the notion of the familiar, the notion of the foreign, these aren't things if you like that are unfamiliar, and yet they're very hard to describe, and yet they, they deserve a description. Now, um, we started about twenty past did we? Yeah. Right, so um, just to give you a very brief rundown of some types of phenomenology. Phenomenology uh, as I say, it's a recuperation experience. And it's an attempt to, to think through these very, very concrete cases of experience. I'll give you examples like handshakes and the uh, uh, experience of temporality. They're a different level. They're all concrete in the sense that we all have them. Or if we don't have them, uh, we have to think why it is we don't have these experiences. 
uh, and it is missing. I mean, throughout Hunt's study, on a famous case of a great man, Victor Cole Schneider, being injured by shrapnel in the First World War, and Colonel uh, Bobby Ned case in study directly. But the person, the guy's experience of space and everything was changed. The sort of right brain dysfunction that we now have discussed by people like Oliver Sacks. But there's a, there's a phenomenology to it. There's a mode of experiencing, uh, which is very interesting. But anyway, going back to the original foundation or source of uh, phenomenology, the term is quite old. It goes back to the 18th century, uh, where it just meant study of phenomena, like rainbows and so on. But in some attempt to try and describe it, uh, before you start classifying Brentano, who is the, one of, Brentano, Franz Brentano is one of the founders of the modern science of psychology, along with Wundt and others. Uh, and Brentano had the view that uh, before, he thought that psychology should be a bit like zoology. That, you know, you don't know there are such things as duckbill and platypuses if you go to Australia and find them there. You know, you just, you just could, you wouldn't just sit around theorizing about what kind of entities could there be out there. Let's see now, or take the field of a dog, body of, uh, you know, sort of recruiting or whatever, uh, uh, wet feet, and uh, yeah, duckbill platypus. Uh, that's not how it works. You actually find them, they try to figure out how did evolution bring them about? It is, an it is a causal explanatory one. But before that, there's just the recognition that these things are there. And psychology is still in a very elementary state in regard to that, in regard to the actual classification of the, what's out there. I mean, Brentano had a very simple idea. He thought you could reduce all the complexities of moods, uh, cognitive experiences, perceptions, imagining, memory, uh, hoping, willing, theory, all of these, to a few basic and he thought that you know, they're all combinations of, let's say, some people may want to say beliefs and desires. Beliefs and desire are fundamental, and you combine in various ways, and you get love, something like that. Love turned out to be, you know, the belief that the person has good qualities. You're like those good qualities. Therefore, combination of belief and desire gives you love. Well, you know, it seems very crude, but that was what. One side of descriptive psychology was just identifying the kinds of entities that are out there in terms of our psychological states, a bit like zoology, just finding out what kind of animals are out there. Husserl's descriptive phenomenology was much more carefully designed to be a methodology. And really it's from Husserl we get this sense that phenomenology is a method, it's a strict method to be applied for gaining a particular kind of result particular kind of training our attention in a particular way. Uh, Husserl's phenomenology emphasized pure description, as I began by saying, description that was, in a sense, without presupposition, not imposing uh, anything on it. Uh, I was talking in the undergraduate class about phenomenology, and a student yawned, and I just sort of said, well, look, you think that, what's that experience? Yawned. You know, it feels, you know, it feels like something. Uh, I thought the person might describe it, but uh, she came back and said, no, uh, uh, it's just my lungs exchanging oxygen or something like that. <coughs> I have to get some technical description. 
I don't, you know, Jimmy, you say you, 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 you know what oxygen feels like, or tastes like, opposed to something else. I mean, you know, there are other uh, gases in, in the air that we're breathing like uh, I don't, I can't tell which is the oxygen and which is one of the inert gases, you know. So, uh, to know that, fits tell which the carbon dioxide, which is the oxygen, we don't know. That's not at all. I mean, it's one account of what a yawn is. Uh, but it's not the only one. So let's try and describe it. Let's abstract from what we know about carbon dioxide and oxygen. And just describe it, first of all, like as if you were seeing it for the first time. Uh, by the way, Bernard Potti says this was the reason for using art. That art, for him, was what the way it was an attempt to show what the world looks like before the theory of construction. Merleau-Ponty's thing in particular, dangerous like Cezanne, is trying to capture the kind of vibrancy of color and shape and movement and uh, motion and the manner in which you might feel like you have no knowledge about objects, just see things. So I don't know if that's true or not, but we have to think about a little bit about that. But, but Husserl's phenomenology aimed at a kind of pre-supposition, uh, pre-prejudice, uh, pre if you like, description. And what Heidegger's main, Heidegger was a student of Husserl, and one of his main complaints was that there was no such thing as pure description in that way, and that all description is already presupposing something, it's already interpretative, or he used the word hermeneutical, hermeneutical, just meaning interpretative. That there's a certain kind of, we're already interpreting things in a certain way, we're already fitted into a situation. Uh, where there are certain presumptions running, you know, so um, uh, hermeneutics came from from, from uh, Christian biblical theory, where you know there was an attempt made to get back behind uh, the sort of static language of the King James Bible to get back to thinking what was the kind of experience that would give rise to people writing. Uh, these letters of gospels at the origin of Christian Europe. So it required kind of anthropology, sort of thinking back into time, what would it have been like as an illiterate fisherman in the Middle East of that 2,000 years ago uh, to have this sense of somebody as a teacher and, and you know, what were they trying to convey? It becomes a very different. So Herman Music tries to peel back the layers of interpretation that have gone on top of that over the last 2,000 years to get back to the original experience. Uh, of course, there's an assumption that's very big as questioned in the later Heidegger, whether there really is this origin, whether there really is this original experience, or whether all experiences are somehow displacements of further ones. This becomes something you'll find in the modernity. But following on from Heidegger, you have uh, when phenomenology, phenomenology really starts in the sort of Austrian-German tradition. And then moved, especially after the Second World War, to France, where Sartre and Roland Ponty added a very strong existential dimension. Um, the German word that's used all the time for experience by Heidegger and Husserl is erlebnis. And it, it, it includes the word leben, which means life. And so erlebnis is often expressed, translated as lived experience or lived through experience as opposed to experiences thought about in some actual abstract way. And the existentialists were much more aware of the need to describe, you know, the phenomena as lived through, 
as under God, as personally under God. So, you know, we don't really think about our lives or we have an existential life crisis. And then suddenly everything becomes questioned. And the whole thing sort of comes into focus, often very dramatic. So the uh, existential phenomenologists wanted much more attention on the lived through quality of our experience. But it was already there in those sort of hiding, but they tended to be more uh, concentrating on the, like, the theoretical aspect of phenomenology rather than as just pure power of description. Um, I'm just running through uh, these guys here. I can skip that. Uh, 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 that's Edward Husserl, who was a student of Bradford Tano, he was a teacher of Heidegger. Uh, I'll just say that word here. One of the things that's interesting about the early student circle of students of Heidegger had it was included the first women in philosophy, uh, Edwig Conrad Martius. Uh, one of the front row there, who went on to have a chair in Munich after the war. Uh, there was a number of, uh, of, of these people, of these women, young women, who came to study phenomenology precisely because they thought it, uh, it addressed uh, more uh, engaged life needs, if you like. Uh, phenomenology of the emotions, the description of the emotions. Emotions became central, actually, in a lot of the phenomenology done at that time. This was prior, in fact, both Hedwig Conrad Martius and then after her, uh, Edith Stein, both campaigned to be allowed to do uh, habilitation. Uh, they were, they were allowed, allowed at the university, but they weren't allowed to qualify as university professors. But they wrote letters and managed to get the ministry to change that. So phenomenologists were, at the time, regarded themselves as a very sort of modern, uh, radical questioning group, questioning everything. You know, question experience in lots of different ways. Heidegger, uh, as I say, they're transformed from sense phenomenology by becoming more interested in what he called the notion of being, which is very difficult. His problem, his life was colored by his very active involvement for a period with the uh, German Nazi movement. And so phenomenology has always had to struggle with that legacy, especially in Heidegger, although there were people such as Peter Stein students of Husserl who also died on the opposite side, who died in the concentration camp as a Jewish. So I think the whole bar. Werner Ponty is one of the most interesting because his work is now hugely influential uh, across a range of different types of discipline. Uh, he himself was very interested in psychology uh, and used phenomenology as a way of enriching uh, psychology, especially criticizing his presuppositions in behaviorist accounts. Uh, his first book, uh, The Structure of Behavior, and then the second book, The Phenomenology of Perception. And it's in that that you get many of the detailed accounts of lived experience, uh, whereby the body is in a particular way caught up in experience, somehow in a kind of whole pre-reflective way of experiencing, not something we think about, something we're actually doing. Uh, the way our hands, you know, form a shape to pick up a glass and so on. Uh, these are really uh, of interest to Merleau Ponty and right now are hugely of interest in cognitive science. Because how do you get someone to play tennis, for example? And, you know, it's not by calculating that the wall is flying at 90 miles an hour and that the angle is coming in at 37 degrees and therefore I have to, to my, I have to run at 8 miles per hour across the two yards of court in order to 
you know, if you couldn't play tennis if you were calculating physics, but if you want, if you want to build a tennis playing machine, you would have to be able to do all that. But the problem is, you can't do it the way humans do it. So we need to describe the way humans do it. And that's our, our other uh, But starting with humans, because the other animals will always have to be at a, a distance from us. Because we don't have the first person experience. One of it is to be us. For animals. Levinas uh, was a student of Husserl and Heidegger. Originally Lithuanian, he spent most of his life in France. But he was very critical of the orientational phenomenology as Husserl and Heidegger had done, which really started with self, with self-experience. And he wanted to claim that really our experience is always other-oriented, um, in the sense that we are dependent on others, but we also, if we like, take our measure of ourselves from our relationship to the other. So it was Levinas who emphasized the other in experience so much. Face-to-face -face relation was a big uh, aspect of uh, Levinas's uh, thought. He thought the whole of ethics, if you like, came down to this notion of face-to-face -face relation. Uh, and the concept of face is itself, a bit like handshake, very complicated. It's not just face. Uh, it's the whole, as we can, you know, you can experience somebody's face talking to another soul. It's not. Uh, the experience of the other isn't facing, if you like, quasi-metaphorically. But it's terribly important uh, as a way of our encountering human beings. Face is huge. Why? Because it's somehow a sort of center of meaning, if you like, of what that person is. Very uh, I didn't mention earlier on, well, I did mention very well, because one of the things he uh, does is uh, he's very heavily influenced by Husserlian phenomenology. But at the same time, he felt that there was in Husserl a certain sense that we start from where we are now, that we are rooted, if you like, in the present. And the past, in some sense, has to be constructed from out of the present. And the future is something, again, measured from the present. But for Derrida, it's the very notion of the present is itself something of a construct. Uh, and so if you kind of peel back the layers of the onion of what the present is, it, it disseminates, is one of his words, or differentiates itself uh, into a whole set of things that are present. Um, you know, uh, who I am isn't uh, just who I'm feeling to be this very instant. It's a whole set of things that are not present, that are somehow uh, there, uh, but not in the sense of being present. So there's a kind of a trace, if you like, of something uh, that might have been once present, and have been part of the Part of Derrida's whole thing is to emphasize that this return to origins view, which Husserl or Heidegger or others will often call, you know, let's say hermeneutics, thinking that if you're a Christian, what you really need to do is to go back to uncover the original experience, what it was like to hear the messages of the original teacher, if you like. Well, that's a kind of myth of origin. Like, the origin is not somewhere in the past that can be recovered. In a way, uh, it's in the future. It's that towards which we're heading. So Derrida loves to play these, or show the complexity of the structuring of our experience. And, and overcome many of the sort of presuppositions that had even got themselves attached with the so-called unprejudiced phenomenological description. Uh, more recently, and I think some people here are interested in his work, 
Hubert Dreyfus, who's at Berkeley, is working on the area of, uh, you know, he was influenced by Heidegger and Foucault, but he's, he was originally asked to do something about, as a phenomenologist, what computers can't do. He wrote a book with his brother called What Computers Can't Do. And then they updated it to What Computers Still Can't Do. Uh, it's still the case that they can't do that. Now, what they can do is have that experience of horizons, of this notion of uh, past and present and moving towards things. In fact, they don't have any of the subject and experience that Fanon talks about. And what's happening is that uh, there's a huge battle going on, even within, within philosophy of mind, as to whether, well, all that. Um, one philosopher calls it disparaging the technical or phenomenology that's running along in our minds. That doesn't matter. But you know, you could be a, uh, like imagine someone sleepwalking. Someone who's sleepwalking is walking, but they're not conscious of walking. Or somebody who's hypnotized might be doing stuff without knowing they're doing. So maybe all experiences like maybe there's just a television going on just to keep us amused, which gives our experiences, but we, our bodies, like that's to adjust stuff. Like you know, your visual system is apprehending things. And all of that can be going on without you being there. Right? So there's a strong move to argue in some quarters, uh, especially in the heart end of cognitive science, that consciousness doesn't matter at all, that everything can be explained in terms of the sort of substructures and subsystems that are in play. And Dreyfus has been a great critic of that, and arguing as in that book, what computers can't do, that they really miss the whole point that consciousness is not just uh, uh, some kind of epiphenomenal complement to experience, but it is what makes the experience what it is in the first instance. Uh, I'll skip on. Um, Zahavi, I just put him in because he has been very influential in uh, the Center for Subjectivity Research that he set up in Denmark. Which is, uh, he has edited a journal called Phenomenology and Accomplishment Sciences, and the whole aim is to gather a whole set of disciplines where subjectivity matters, and uh, to have a sort of science of subjectivity, but not one that was done on the basis of, oh well, you know, the only kind of sciences are objective sciences. So there's a real problem. I mean, how do you have a science of subjectivity? Well, in one sense, that's what phenomenology is. It's meant to be uh, a science of subjectivity, but it's not. One of the things that phenomenologists point out that there's no stance from outside the subject that we can take about our experience. In other words, uh, science often takes kind of third-person, detached, uh, sometimes philosophers call it the God's eye perspective. Uh, I, to give the example, an architect's plan of this building will show the layout of the room in a particular way, but it's sort of seen from God's eye. But it's not the way we experience rooms. We experience rooms in a different way. We walk in, we're oriented towards the light, towards the angles, you know, we each find where we want to sit. Some people have, because of this familiarity routine, some people will always sit in the same place. We watch this after lunch, or whatever, you all want to go back to that seat you've already walked up or whatever. You might feel out of place in a different seat. But, you know, that's not on the architect's drawing. And no amount of putting extra drawings in there will give you that, because the experience is, we can't jump out of our skins and look at how we're experiencing. 
So the only thing we can best do is, is coordinate our experience with others, which is already the case. Because, I mean, this is peculiarity of one of the things that phenomenology uh, points to, is that when I'm seeing an object, like this object, as part of my sense of this object being there, what part of what it means for me is that you see it as well. And that you see it from your perspective, which isn't the same one as mine. I've run out of time, so I'm, I'm just going to uh, uh, quit all this one. Uh, this one. And uh, just bring up one slide. If you give me one more minute. Uh, I'll just close this one down. And I just want to open one other one. Yeah. Uh, and just take one notion that we're just coming to here, which since this is about materiality, and that is, um, sorry, I'll just go back to this one because this is where I was in a way, that when I was talking about my map of the campus there, <coughs> um, that notion is that uh, even with experiences of space, we orient ourselves according to how we think of space is. Why don't we choose to draw a map of how you think buildings on this campus are relative to where you can hit instead? You know, if you put it, you put superimpose that on the, on the grid map of the area, it'd be quite different because we have our own ways of orienting ourselves. We have our own map. And yet there are pieces. You couldn't find your way around, you couldn't find your way to the home without that kind of map. So the, the experiencing of space is crucially important. And almost entirely forgotten by modern architects. That's why I have that thing walking in a straight line. I think only the best architects, uh, or sometimes because of lack of money, uh, leave the paving to last. And they watch where people go. Because people walk in a straight line. But nobody laying out plans for universities ever seems to notice that. And so they have people walking around with grass. <coughs> And they have a sign, don't walk across the ground. And, and so they want to brutalize people into not walking in straight lines. Direct. People who walk the shortest distance somewhere. That's just what a human do. Uh, you know, making them go around some obstacle in order to, to appreciate the aesthetics of the green grass, that's the sort of brutalization that architects like to impose on us. You know, and it's the sort of thing we should resist, because if we were talking about, hold on, this is the way I experience. This is why I want to experience it. Your way of imposing your experience you know, may look good on the drawing, but in reality it isn't good. That's the kind of thing that I think phenomenology can be very good at. Uh, just to go to the final point, and then I'll stop, is this uh, uh, notion of the phenomenology of the physical object. We're just getting into it there a second ago uh, in talking about looking at the desk. That phenomenologists use this word givenness, and it's the manner in which things are presented. Um, givenness doesn't mean just material givenness. I mean, this desk uh, contraption uh, is here in front of me, and it's certainly a material imposing uh, object, which all of us can, can see, or in some way encounter. We can lean against, or bump up against, or touch, or something. So, there are the multiple modalities of givenness. It's given from multi-sensorial matter, if you like. But it's also, it's also given in an impossible number of perspectives, not, of, not all of which I can occupy. Each one of us is looking at that desk at a slightly different angle, and they're seeing perhaps different sides. And the purpose, only the people on this side can see that this has been chipped off. The people on the other side don't know that. So they're probably filling 
what they think is on this side from what they know to be on that side. So, uh, you know, you think maybe that this color extends around the back and so on. And we run on our experience. Lustro talks about that, the manner in which we think the carpet runs on under the desk. It's just part of our experience and part of the horizontality and continuity of our experience. We just assume it to be like that. It may not be like that, but it's part of the way in which we experience objects. Objects are not just what's there, but there's also a certain kind of set of profiles that I've not currently experienced, but which I'm very generously conceding that you experience. What each of us is doing. So you think that person is that right, right now that I've seen the back of the desk and you're not, but you know there's a back of the desk to be seen. Now you could do lots of things with it. Some people thought, oh, but aren't you imagining what it looks like? You could imagine could be visualizing it as having the same color around the back that does around the front. Or you may just have a kind of blank or empty horizon. Also, we fascinated by those kind of empty horizons we have. We just, there's lots of aspects of a physical object that we just simply haven't filled in. But it's not just we haven't filled in, they're not filled in. You know, as I said earlier, this bottle being usable, you know, as a, uh, as a, as a weapon or something like that isn't filled in. It could be. Somebody could be thinking of nothing else all the time. Say, I'll take that bottom and smash it over his head. But it's not. So, you know, <coughs> in fact, Husserl makes this point that there's actually an infinity of different. You know, there's, I mean, even thinking the bottle is a bottle seen from here, there's a bottle seen from here, and so on to infinity. So, for even any one angle of approach, there's an infinite, infinite number of layers to that. So objects are far more complicated. And that's one of the things phenomenology talks about, is this mode of givenness of objects is incredibly complicated. Uh, now, Husserl thought, mistakenly, I think, that in contrast to physical objects, our own mental experiences were given to us directly without being in profiles. In other words, there's no other side to my uh, thought of uh, what I'm doing right now, it just is, it's kind of transparent to me. That was a kind of residue from Descartes that, who thought that all our consciousness was sort of transparent. And that's one of the things that uh, is criticized, that mental experience is given as it appears is something that's criticized. But it was for Husserl the basis of doing phenomenology. The reason we could describe these things is because we, we didn't have to worry about the manner in which these are given. But, I mean, they've become more problematic these days. And I'll just end now with this, that uh, going just to, to, just to kind of uh, recover where we're going with the notion of, of phenomenology, I don't think it's a very strict method. I think it's a mode of approach rather than a method. But I do think that it's sort of tradition over the hundred years that it's been practiced has been to avoid speculative imposition of theories on something. Oh, that's because you're colorblind. Or you're seeing it that way because we're used to desks or something like that. But just to describe what we're seeing or experiencing. And, and that means these two phrases then, intentional analysis, do anything with analysis, they mean that we pay attention not just to the mode of givenness of the object, but the manner of approach of the subject. If we're looking at a work of art, we're coming with the aesthetic approach. If I'm looking at a religious object with an attitude of veneration, it's only because of that I see it as a relic of a saint or whatever. 
Otherwise, it just becomes a bubble. So you know, there are different ways of seeing things. And, they, and we really do occupy them. Um, so attending to these forms of description and the forms of analysis are important. The bracketing, let's start using the Greek word ethoke, means to sort of try to select out also things that are interfering with our experience. And then finally, one of the crucial things in phenomenology is it really does try to get at the essence of what's going on. You know, the, the slogan was back to the things themselves, which means back to the essence of, of, of our experience. Uh, what do I have? To, sorry, it's in the other. I won't, uh, uh, I won't go on too much here anyway, but I'll stop uh, now and say that, just in, in the last word, that phenomenology, going into the second session, I've had a number of conferences recently about phenomenology's future. Uh, because it's, it's, the one thing is sure, it's not the only approach. That is, it is not anti scientific. It's not saying you have to abandon the scientific. Uh, but on the other hand, it's a bit like what I was saying about the Sometimes you have to point out to people who are occupying one standpoint that there are other standpoints that have to be taken I mean, you know, in a way, the whole feminist critique of the masculine culture was about that. It's like, look, no, you think that because you're occupying that position, but you were occupying that position. I mean, just that relativity of experience is a crucial point. But it's not just to say there are only these two ways of looking at it, there are a multiplicity of those. So phenomenology has to have that difference <coughs> to experiencing that allows us to even think all the time, well, yes, I'm thinking of it this way, and I'm experiencing it this way. But perhaps because you know, my subject's approach is slanted in this particular manner. So how would it be other? You know, thinking otherwise is something that uh, Levinas uses as a phrase all the time. As to what's crucial and central to so rather than being method or the method, especially in the social sciences, I would like to think of it as a sort of anti-method, as a sort of way of reminding us always that there's going to be more, this horizon, this, this, this extra element, uh, that we're probably missing out in the way we're approaching things. And so that's what I think its contribution is. So thank you very much. This talk was recorded in person with a live audience on Thursday, June the 5th, 2008 in the UCD Lachlan Quinn Undergraduate School of Business, Belfield, Dublin, Ireland. The Triangular Quadrangular Conference is an occasional symposium hosted jointly by Lancaster University, University of Cambridge, the London School of Economics and University College Dublin. The conference was supported by the UCD School of Business Doctoral Studies Program and hosted by the UCD Centre for Innovation, Technology and Organisation. Thank you for listening. Please follow and share if you liked this episode. The musical elements are from the Adagio in G minor, released under a CC BY 3.0 licence. See the show notes or description for details. Mm-hmm.